Well, our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 10, excuse me, Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. It's Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. While you're finding your way there, I failed to let you know that uh, after our service this morning, uh, we are going to uh, have a potluck luncheon down in the, the fellowship hall and certainly hope that you'll join us, even if you didn't have a chance to bring anything, you're welcome to come and, and be part of that time of fellowship as we break bread together. So look forward to that. Lasagna, I'm excited about that. So praise the Lord for lasagna and, um, and praise the Lord for his word, which we now turn our attention to in Genesis 11, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of God. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Apokshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apokshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Apokshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Apokshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu, and Peleg lived after he had fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug, and Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father, we thank you so much for this word in which we now come to, and we pray that you would help us to understand it and to heed it, that we pray that we would be able to know you better through it. We believe it is your revealed word to us. It is how you show us who you are, what you've done, and what you expect from us, and what you have done for us. So I pray, therefore, that we would come to it with great earnestness and hope and desire, that we, would, that we would listen hard and well, that we may know our God better and follow Him more faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sam Kemmel's son, who is a leader in the missionary movement, has told a story of a 70-year-old lady who came to Christ. 
This woman who lived in Melbourne, Australia, came to her new pastor shortly after her conversion to Jesus and said, I believe God has called me into the ministry. What should I do? Well, her pastor gave her this advice. You should pray about that. That's the advice pastors give when we don't know what else to say. Just go pray about it. Well, she did. She went and prayed and she felt that God was leading her. Very specifically interesting. She actually went out and um, based upon the, the leadership of God on her life, she bought uh, a stack of three by five index cards. And she wrote on each of these cards, are you homesick? Come to my house, come to my home for tea at four. And then she went the next morning and took the cards all over the University of Melbourne and put them on every poster board that she could find. That afternoon, she went home. Shortly before four o'clock, she prepared tea for herself and for all her guests. But no one came. The next day, undeterred, she prepared tea once again, and no one came. A week later, she was still preparing tea, and yet none came. And even two weeks, she continued to faithfully prepare tea for her guests, and none came. It was not until the 15th day that finally an Indonesian student stood at her door, homesick and eager to talk. When he came in, and she served him tea and listened. Well, interesting, this student went back to school and told all his friends, hey, you won't believe it, I met a lady just like my grandmother. And soon after that, many students became to come over to her house for afternoon tea at four. She would continue this ministry for 10 years. When she died at the age of 80, she had 70 pallbearers. Indonesians, Malaysians, Indians, Pakistanis, all international students who came to her home and not only were served tea, but were served the gospel and found Jesus Christ. A remarkable testimony, a remarkable work of God that this woman had even in a late, a late time in her life, in her season. I want to speak to you this morning about another sibling that we have in Christ who God also used mightily late in his life. Of course, as we've seen in our text, I refer to Abram. Of course, we know that God has used many people throughout the history of uh, his kingdom, the history of redemption, and we can list all the great people in which God has used. Perhaps we, we think of Moses and David or, or Paul and Peter, or, or maybe uh, we think of, of Mary and Magdalene or Luther and Calvin or Carrie and Judson and all these incredible heroes of the faith who God used mightily for his fame and the expansion of his kingdom. We can list them all out, but many have speculated that the one exceeds them all. In fact, that through this one man, Abram, he has had more influence on the world than any other person except Jesus himself. In fact, we come to this part in the book of Genesis, our study of Genesis, which was really the kind of the hinge or the pivot in the book, in this book. The, the first 11 chapters are often called primeval Genesis. And we say that because it's, it's kind of God stepping back and dealing with all of humanity over and over again. And we get to Genesis chapter 12 and we begin into what's now called patriarchal Genesis where God no longer focuses on humanity but focuses specifically on a family through a series of four patriarchs. And and we come to the, the head of that patriarch, the head of that family, this man named Abram who will later be known as Abraham. He is very much the central figure in the book of Genesis. He has 14 chapters devoted to his pursuit of God and his obedience of him. In fact, we know that three of the world's major religions all find their their foundation, all trace their faith through Abraham, interestingly enough. He's mentioned in 11 of the 27 New Testament books, including all four Gospels, where Jesus frequently speaks of him. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, where we find this great hall of faith, and, and we see saint after saint being described as a man or a woman of faith, most of those saints get one verse. Perhaps if you've done something um, uh, noteworthy, you'll get a couple verses. Moses would receive six verses. But Abraham himself is given 12 verses to describe about his pursuit of God, his trust in him. Paul will say in Romans chapter 4 that Abram is the father of all believers. And so we're going to meet Abram today. We're going to start at his humble and simple beginnings as we end our study of Genesis, just getting us through primeval Genesis. Perhaps one day we'll return and pick up later in chapter 12. And we're going to consider how this man starts, though, as we see where God is headed we see that uh, the story of Abraham is not really just a story of him, but it is ultimately a story of his God and what his God is doing through him, in which we see how God now begins to permanently deal with sin. God begins his plan to save and redeem and to restore. And I think that's important because in our, I don't know if you've picked this up, but in our study of Genesis, especially when we are in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 11, it's somewhat repetitive. And what I mean by that, we see a story after story of sin, and then what happens? God comes in judgment upon that sin, but that judgment's always tempered with grace. And there's another sin, and then God comes and judges that sin and tempers it with grace. And there's another sin, and here comes God in judgment. And we're just in this big cycle. I feel like a, a hamster in a wheel. We're not going anywhere. He, it's not working. Sin continues to flourish. In fact, the only thing that seems to change in these stories is that the sin keeps getting worse. Where our first parents had to be talked into their rebellion, and then their son Cain couldn't be talked out of murdering his brother. And then when we see all the world, God says, you have all corrupted this world through your violence and many other sins and rebellion. And last week we even saw that, that, that men gathered together even after God's great flood and said, we want to be our own gods. We want to make a name for ourselves. We will not submit to him. And we see sin, 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 and then judgment, judgment, judgment. And I think the question that these chapters scream is, is there a solution to sin? Or are we just destined just to continue this cycle? I think God is in some sense putting the sickness in front of us before he shows us his cure. I'm here to tell you there is a, is a cure to sin. There is a cure in which God shall permanently and forever solve this problem. And interestingly enough, it begins with this man named Abram. As we see here, In verse 3, in fact, you notice of chapter 12. At the end of verse 3, God says to him, we looked at this verse last week a little bit, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, the Apostle Paul quotes that verse and says that is the gospel. That's that's the gospel, he says. Just a seed of the gospel, not the the full fleshed out robust gospel, but it's there, it's a kernel. And so what I'd like to consider this morning is how does God plan to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the ethnicities and tongues and tribes? How is he going to redeem the nations? How is he going to permanently deal with this problem of a sin? As we see, he begins with the choice of Abram. We'll look at three scenes this morning as God begins his plan of redemption here in Genesis 11 and 12. He begins by choosing Abram. Now, you notice, undoubtedly, as we read through Scripture, that we once again are confronted with another genealogy. 
And just staring us at the face as we have Genesis 4, genealogy, Genesis 5. We saw Genesis 10 last week. Here we are in Genesis 11, another genealogy. This is not the only place we find them. They're in the book of Chronicles and Kings and Ezra. They're in the New Testament in Matthew and Luke. And God continually puts these genealogies in front of us. Many people, I think, want to know why. Why do we keep finding these here? Well, I think, uh, generally speaking, it shows us at the very least that God loves people. Can we say that? God loves people. These are all people, Reu and Shela and, and all Eber, all these guys that we don't know anything about. You do realize that there are people just like you. They had jobs and homes and families and they had aspirations and dreams and heartache and sorrow. They were people. They're people. And if you and I are writing the scripture, we skip this stuff, don't we? We don't bother to list these people out. We say we want to get to the good stuff. But I wonder if God says this is the good stuff. These are my people. I love them. That gives me great hope, by the way. This is coming a day in which I will be forgotten, and so will you if Jesus tarries. I don't know how many generations it will take, maybe four or five, maybe ten, I don't know. But for most of us, there will come a day in which your entire existence will be completely washed from any memory on this earth. No one will have any idea you ever existed, except God. God loves people. God takes note of them. And so I think at the very least, that should give us great hope. But I think there's a a more specific reason why we continue to see the genealogies. And it goes back to that promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. When God, when he first confronts sin, he says to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, by the way, that he will bring forth from the seed of woman a serpent slayer. That though the serpent will bite his heel, he will crush his head. And God is promising there that he plans to undo all the effects of, of the devil and sin and restore that which has been lost to him. And so he makes this promise that it will come forth from the seed of the woman. And then we see these genealogies in Genesis. And what God is showing us is that he is faithful to keep this promise. He's taking us generation after generation after generation. And ultimately he'll bring us right into Bethlehem where we'll see that serpent slayer born. I think he's showing us that he's faithful. So we've gone from Adam to Seth and to Seth to Noah and then Noah to Shem and now Shem to, to Abraham and, and it's not going to stop there. It goes on to Jacob and then Jacob to Boaz and Boaz to David and David to Josiah and Josiah to Mary and Mary to Jesus. That he will bring forth that which he has promised. He will not forget the promises that he's given. And so I think he's working us through this, reminding us that he has not forgotten Well, he's going to slow down after he lists these genealogies here in verse 27 and begin to focus on one family in particular, the family of Terah. You notice verse 27 says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And so we begin to look. We have this, this family. We know, of course, Lot is Abram's nephew. We'll know much about in the study of Scripture. Verse 28 says, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. We have the names of their wives here. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Milcah will be important just for a footnote, by the way. She will be the grandmother of Rebekah. And so I think that's perhaps why she's listed here as identified. Because when, when uh, Abram seeks a, a wife for his son Isaac, he'll f- want someone from his own family. And so Rebekah will be descended from, from Milcah. And we see here this family. We begin to describe this family. Of course, we know Abram is now married to this, this woman named Sarai. Um, it's an interesting name. It means princess. Sarai means princess. Which probably means she's high maintenance, I think. 
Um, I don't know if you, you, you name, someone named Princess, uh, there's a lot of expectations, isn't there? So um, you probably ought to beware of anyone named Princess, but here they are. Uh, he married this woman, Princess, and, and um, the, there's a big problem, isn't there? We see in verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, I think that's interesting because what we've been doing is we've been following this line to get to the serpent slayer. And we, he takes us all the way, thousands of years, and we finally get to Abram and Sarai, and we find out, wait a second, it's a dead end. How, how are they going to bring forth the, this, this Savior when they themselves can't even have children? And we're presented as this massive obstacle, as this mountain that, that you and I cannot get around. But praise be to God, this is no obstacle to him, is it? There's no trouble to him whatsoever. In fact, I think he puts it there just so he could show us how he so easily uh, surmounts it, so easily gets by it as an opportunity to show us, I think perhaps, that our salvation wholly is not due to our participation in it, but simply by God's sovereign saving acts and his good pleasure, he will choose these people who by any natural means have no ability to do what they are called to do. Of course, we settles here down on Abram. As we see here in verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, Lot, uh, uh, his son, and Lot, his, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Uh, when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Verse 1 of chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, he's going to call Abram, isn't he? It's interesting to think that Noah had three sons and, and God chose this one Shem and then Shem had five sons and yet God chose to work through Arpachshad, one of his sons. And we keep going down through the generations. Ten generations are listed for us and we finally get here to Abram and Terah had three sons and God is going to choose to Abram. And the question I have when I, when I think about this is why? Why, why him? I mean, by this time, there's millions of people upon the earth. There's generations after generations, and, and all these people are here. Why would he choose this man, Abram? I, I think what we think about it, well, well, of course, he's Abraham, right? We think, Abraham we, is a godly, man, mighty man of faith. Well, and he may become that, but I don't think he's that here. In fact, you notice he's living in Ur of Chaldeans. Chaldea is just Babylon. And so Abram's a Babylonian. In fact, we saw last week, where were they building the tower? Well, in Babylon, the city of Babel. And so God confuses their language and, and in order to scatter them, except there seems to be a family that doesn't want to move anywhere. And it's, it's Abram's family. They're settled there. We, we not only know that they will not move on, but we know that Abram's father is a pagan, Terah. We know this from Joshua 24. It says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and serve the Lord. I want you to understand that Terah is a godless man. He is a pagan. He is not worshipping God. He, he belongs to the wrong religion. He, he, is, he is faithless in pursuit of God. We know this is, stays in their family because Rebecca, uh, uh, remember her when, when she comes from this family and she leaves her father Laban? What does she take with her? But the household gods, her idols. This is a family of pagans who have rejected the one true God. And so we, we see God choose Abram, but I want you to understand that it's not because there's something in Abram to commend him. 
There's not, you know, the look all around the world and he says, well, everybody's foolish and sinful, but here's this man who's actually following me. No, he, he's an old pagan from a bad city with a godless dad and a barren wife named Princess. There's nothing to commend him. There's nothing, no, you don't look at him and say, that man's going to change the world for God. No, not in the slightest. He doesn't survey the world, says everyone's evil except for this man. Uh, perhaps you've heard this already in our study of Genesis, but the reality is, is we're all evil. And there's one good named Jesus. And he chooses evil people. You understand that? He chooses wicked people. He chooses sinful people in order to magnify his grace. He reaches into the pit of rebellion and rescues people. He crosses enemy lines and chooses those who are wicked. This is clearly seen in Abram's life. His godless dad living in a city that God judged, a barren wife. I I've so much appreciate the fact that you, uh, you are willing and inclined to bring me and my wife up here and, and honor me. Um, I, I know what it's like to live not loving Jesus. Some of you don't know what that's like. And I pray so. I hope my kids never know what that's like, what it's like to live life not loving Jesus. I did that for half my life. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't seeking him. And, and what he did is he crossed enemy lines. And he rescued me from myself. He saved me. He, he chose me. He chose Abram. And, and I think he goes and finds these wicked, sinful people so that we realize, listen, I saw what I was doing when I was on my own. And so it's all the praise is due to him. All the glory is him. And we see this here in Abram's life. He, I hope you, and perhaps there's someone here, your life is a total mess. A total mess. You are not beyond the reach of God. That's what he does. He redeems. He buys back from captivity and folly and sin and says, you are mine. I will restore you and fix you and make you like me. That's what he did here in Abram's life. He chose Abram. And once he did, notice what happens. He now commands him. You see, when he calls us to himself, it's not like he's just going to follow us around and bless us over and over again. He just provides for us everything we want with no demands upon our life whatsoever. No, it's quite the opposite. And we see here that he lays these incredible commands on Abram. As we see scene number two, the command to Abram. We read in verse 1 of chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I always find these passages interesting where God just shows up and starts speaking to someone. I kind of I wish I knew what they were doing. I don't know what Abram was doing. I don't know if he's shearing sheep or working on the house or watching the game or what's going on. But, but God just shows up and he begins to talk to him out of the blue. In fact, you notice there's not much small talk here, is there? He doesn't show up and say, hello, I'm God. I hope you like the world you're living in. I made for you. He just shows up and says, leave. Go. No chit-chat. Just command. Hard commands. In fact, he's called to leave three things, isn't he? He's to leave his father's country. He's to leave the land, he says in verse 1. If we read, I don't, I don't know if you caught this, when we're reading through chapter 11, the, the picture is, is that this call comes once they've already left Chaldea and are in Haran. But we know that's not the case. Chapter 11, that, those verses, 20, verses 31 and 32 do not 
precede chronologically chapter 12, verse 1. They come after. We know that Abram received this call not when he had already moved his family to Iran, but that he's still in Chaldea. We know this from a number of passages. Acts 2, perhaps Acts 7 being the most clear. The God, the glory um, appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from the land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there to this land in which you are now living. So when God says, leave your country, he's referring not to Haran, but Chaldea. Um, and he says, I want you to go. Leave this land. I wonder if God said that to you. Okay, leave America. Leave this country. I wonder how you would respond. That would be hard, wouldn't it? We, we like this country. We, we, like, we like the freedom that we have. We like the food that we eat. We like college football. Um, we like this land, don't we? We like this place in which God... But God says to him, it's time to leave. You need to leave this country. By the way, Ur was a wonderful place to live. It was probably the best place to live in this day. We know this from the St. Leonard Woolley's excavations in the 1920s and 1930s. He took 13 years to excavate the um, Ur of Chaldea. And as he did, the great newspapers of the world followed his progress year after year. He began to attract travelers to his excavation site. The great uh, mystery writer Agatha Christie would go there, and she would marry one of Woolley's assistants. And there she would write a number of her books that took place in, in this pl- land in which, she, which was being discovered before their eyes. They discovered these ziggurat towers that some rose 150 feet above the, uh, the street level. At the top, there was a worship dedicated either to the stars or to the moon, the god Nana, they called him. There are other pagan temples there, all surrounded by these city walls. It was a, a very pagan place to live. Perhaps the most disturbing discovery they found was what is called the Great Death Pit in which Queen Puabi, with her decorated corpse, was buried with 73 of her servants who were killed in order to escort her into the afterlife and serve her there. And so it was a very pagan place, but beyond that, this pagan influence is probably one of the most prosperous places in ancient civilization. We know it was a port city. It was a center of commerce. It's known for its gem engraving and its metalwork. It was watered by two great uh, rivers, producing corn and dates in abundance, in addition to apples and grapes and pomegranates. We know that they had developed the most sophisticated legal code in that day. They were advanced in mathematics, architecture, and astronomy. It was the height of ancient civilization. And Abram is told to leave. Go. You cannot stay here anymore. In fact, he's not only told to leave his country, but you see he's told, secondly, to leave his people. Those who are like you. The, the people where you find acceptance and security and help, you are to leave them behind as well. And perhaps even most difficult, we see thirdly, he's told to leave his family. You're to leave your father's house. To do so would be unheard of, by the way. You would never leave your father's house. You get married and build your house on your father's property. You stay there together. And he's told it's time to leave. You need to leave your family behind. Leave everything you know. Security, comfort, leave, leave it all. I, I wonder if God said that to you. I wonder what you would, how you would respond. Now, we, we like to be comfortable, I think. We like predictability. We like to avoid risk. I wonder if there are any limitations we're putting on God. I will do this, but not that. That's too much. That's too much to ask. Well, it didn't seem that God cared what Abraham thought. He was going to command it. I just spent the last uh, three days, uh, Wednesday through Friday, down in our missionary training center and had a number of meals with missionaries that are going to far strange places because they love Jesus and they love the lost. 
I'm so thankful for them. I, I, I very much hope that we support them come December when we collect our Lottie Moon Christmas offering for four missions so that they can go and do this work. They receive a call very much like Abram's to go to a faraway land. What I find particularly interesting is that chapter 12, verse 4 tells us his age when he received the call. He was only 75 years old. Isn't that interesting? Maybe that's a word for some of you who are older here. That Abraham was 75 years when he received that call. I think that'd be very difficult. I, when I'm 75, I'm not planning to go anywhere. Except maybe the, the Caribbean or something like that. Right? I mean, your house is paid off. You finally get the school loans paid off. Right? And you, you're, you're staying put. You don't want to go anywhere. I wonder why didn't God call him when he was 20 or 30? Why not then? Why wait till he is so old? Why wait till the twilight years of his life? I wonder if he thought, can't you find someone younger? No, God said, I want you. Which I think very, very helpful for us to recognize the time in which we start serving God. It's not an age in which we receive, it's when we die. And even then, I think we'll serve him forever, will we not? And we see God call this man. He wants him to leave. I, I, I somewhat wonder why he wants him to leave. Why can't he do what he plans to do there in Ur? Why does he have to actually go someplace? And I just wonder if it's necessary for his spiritual development to leave behind, to have a new start, to get out of these influences and to, to begin again. It sounds very familiar to what Jesus would say when he said, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He calls for us to give up things, doesn't he? He calls for us to give up that which is troubling upon our life in order that he can give us something better. He's going to give Abraham better land, a better family. And he calls him to leave that behind, first of all. See, in order to receive the blessings of God, sometimes we have to let go of that which he calls us to let go. I think that's why so many Christians are sad. So many Christians live joyless lives. Because they hold on to so, so tightly what God has said you need to let go of, whether it be sin or some other sacrifices. I will not let go of this. And if we do not let go of it, God cannot fill our hand with what he wants to fill it. And he calls Abram, it's time to leave. You have to go. In fact, he not only tells him to leave, but he tells him to go someplace. You notice in the end of verse uh, 1, is it? He says, and, and go to the land that I will show you. Which would be somewhat frustrating for me, because I would like at the very least to know where I'm going. Right? Okay, if I'm leaving, where are we actually headed to? And God says, oh, you'll see when you get there. I just want you to close your eyes and grab my hand, and I will lead you. That's exactly how Calvin paraphrased it. He says, I command you to go forth with closed eyes. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm 39 years old. And to believe it or not, I did not plan to be here today 20 years ago. This is not part of my plan. Interesting where we find ourselves. You know, God never tells us the destination, does He? How many of you are in a place where you never dreamed you would be doing a thing you never dreamed that you would be doing? See, God doesn't tell us where He's taking us, but, but He doesn't tell us that He's going to give us ease or wealth or comfort or security. But He does say, I'll be with you. We're going together. Praise the Lord for that. I'm so happy to be with God. I'm so happy that he says, Abraham, we're going to go, but it'll be a land that I will show you. And that is that we are going together. I'll bring you there. And what we see in chapter 12 and verse 4, Abram went. He obeyed. Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and went out not knowing where he was going. That's what faith does. It steps out. It doesn't know where we're headed. It just moves. It obeys. And in doing so, God says, I'm going to bless you. As we see thirdly, the blessings through Abraham. 
Verse 2 tells us, And I will make, your, make of you a great nation. So God's going to bless him with a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Again, it's somewhat interesting. I must imagine Abram, when he heard this, this promise, oh, you're going to be a great bl- a nation. The problem is he's 75 and doesn't have kids. And so how's that going to happen? He must have wondered. And yet he trusted. He followed. God says as well that I will make your name great, which I find incredibly interested, interesting in light of the passage we studied last week. Remember the, the Babylonians, what did they want to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted a great name. And now we hear are in chapter 12, one chapter later, and God says, by the way, I'm going to give you a great name. You see, God's not interested in putting us down and beating us down. He wants to lift us up, but he only wants to do it if we are going to exalt him. He said, he'll give us a great name if we use it to bring him honor and glory, which is what he will do in Abram's life. He will give him this, this great name that we may make his name great. He's going to bless him. Bless him, he says. I'm going to bless you and bless you. Eighty times God is told that he blesses in the book of Genesis. He loves to bless. He's good and kind. You don't have to bargain with God. You don't have to twist his arm behind his back in order to get him to bless you. That's his default position is he wants to bless you. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But he tells him why he's going to do it, which I think is so important for us to see as we read the end of verse 2. See this? So that you will be a blessing. You get that? I'm going to bless you so you will be a blessing. And so please do not, not think that, that God is picking this person and says, okay, I'll be nice to you and to the hell with everybody else. I'm just, I want this guy and I don't care about anybody else. No, God says, I want this guy because I'm going to work in his life in order that he may be a channel of my grace and mercy into other people's lives. In fact, I think this is where we get, in some sense, the, the understanding of Christian charity. That, that God gives to us so that we can give to others. We live in a land of greed and materialism. It says, I want, I want, I want. I'm going to get and get and get, and I'm going to keep it to myself. It's all mine. If you want something, you go get it. This is mine. That's the land we live in. But God says, no, I, I don't give you all this so you can wrap your arms around it. I give it so you can actually give it to others, that you can bless others. Uh, I want you to keep your hands open that so others can take, and then uh, I'll put back into your hands. Jesus says, he who is faithful with little will be given, given much. You have to prove yourself faithful, and then God will bless. And so I don't know if God's giving you skills and gifts. Has God given you love? Should you not share that with others? Or grace? Share that with others? Abilities? Money? Should you not share that with others? Should you not pour that into other people's lives? I, I'm happy to be a member of the Hamilton Baptist Church, by the way, as we've been working on our budget that we'll present to you in a couple weeks. I do want to let you know that for every dollar you put in an offering plate, we send 20 cents outside these walls to feed the poor and plant churches and to uh, support missionaries. In fact, even though our budget is going to be decreased this year, we're actually increasing the percentage that we give outside these walls. We're not a lot. We need to do better, but we're headed in the right direction. Because we understand that God's not blessing us just so we can have nice things, but so that we can impact the world, that we can be a channel of blessing. We want to be faithful with what God has given us. And God says to to Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to other people. In fact, he's even more clear here in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He says, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing. You think, okay, well, how did Abraham bless others? So if God blesses Abraham so he can be a blessing to others, how did he do it? How, in what way was he a blessing? 
Well, I think it's because Abraham um, began to tell people what God was doing in his life. I, I believe that those who met Abraham recognized God's hand on him, and he was quick to, te- quick to testify of the work that God was doing in him. In fact, look in, in chapter 12, verse 5. It says, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions they had gathered. Now look at this phrase. And all the people they had acquired in Haran. That's an interesting. All the people they had acquired in Haran. What does he mean by that? Some commentators think he means the slaves or the servants in which he had acquired. But others have translated this verse uh, this way. The souls that he had won in Haran. I like that, that translation. I, I wonder if Abraham is witnessing and proclaiming the gospel. I wonder if he's telling people about God and the work that he is doing in his life and the blessings that he, he had brought. In fact, we know in chapter 14 that Abraham, though he had not a single child, had 318 people with him. Where did all these people come from? Well, I think they're just gathering together in this caravan as God is clearly blessing them and, and working with them. In fact, you look down in verse 8, and it says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Even though it's a pagan worship center, he's going to build this public altar to the Lord with all 318 people gathering around to worship. And what? Called, or some translations say, proclaimed the name of the Lord. He preached Yahweh. He told people about his God in this pagan land and people begin to get blessed by him as he began to proclaim this God whom he now followed. And if that's, if that's what's happening, how far have we come since Babel? Where they say, I just want a name for myself. We're going to become like gods. And Abraham says, no, I just want to lift up the name of God. I want to proclaim his name, not my own. And he begins to bless others. In fact, the Bible's here at the end of verse 3 says that all families of the earth shall be blessed with him. That should be read, I think, all nations, all ethnicities, all tongues, all tribes will be blessed through Abraham. That God, God is going to do this work through him. So please understand very clearly that God does not choose Abram instead of others. He chooses Abram to bless others. God never chose the nation of Israel in exclusion of the other nations. He chose the nation of Israel in order to bless the other nations, in order to reach out to the other nations. We see that very clearly in Jonah's life as he goes to this pagan land, Nineveh, because God wants to be a blessing to them, that God has this worldwide plan to bless all families of the earth, all tongues and tribes and languages, to redeem all the nations back into his kingdom. And he says, it's going to start with you, Abram. I mentioned that verse 3 is called the gospel in the New Testament. Galatians 3.8 says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So I'm going to bless all the nations through you. Now here's the question. How, how does God do that? Because clearly all the nations have not been, not even today, have been blessed through Abraham. Certainly not in his day. What what does God mean by that? Well, as we read on the book of Genesis, God becomes more specific as he tells us more about this plan. And we read it's not specifically in Abraham, but it's through Abraham. That is through his offspring that he will bless all the nations of the earth. Genesis 22, 18 says, In your offspring, offspring being singular, by the way, the New Testament is very clear, Shall all the nations on the earth be blessed? Genesis 26, 8. Genesis 28, 14 says the exact same thing. Through your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. You see, here's the problem we have. It's sin. 
We, we have this rebellion. We, we don't follow the, our maker. We don't look to him. We don't do what he wants us to do. And, and God encounters that sin as we've seen in our study of Genesis. In Genesis 3, and he says to the, to Eve that you're, you're the child of Eve, if you will, the, the seed of the woman shall come and destroy the devil and his work. Though the devil will strike his heel, he will crush his head. And then 2,000 years later, God remembers that promise. And He calls this man Abram to Himself. And He says, through your seed, through your son, all the nations on this earth will be blessed. And then we go 2,000 years into the future. And there's this man who Matthew calls the son of Abraham. And he shows up and he begins to minister and to work miracles and to proclaim God. And one day he has an encounter with all the religious leaders of the day. And they say, we don't know who you are, but we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not a child of Abraham. In fact, you, you need to start at the beginning of the Bible. You're a seed of the devil. You're, you're the devil's seed. And they say, wait a second, what are, you, what are you talking about? We've descended from Abraham. We're his great nation that God had promised. And Jesus says to them, well, if you were his great nation, if you were Abraham's children, you would act like Abraham. And Abraham loved me and obeyed me. And in their great astonishment, they say, are you claiming to be better than Abraham? And Jesus says, of course. For Abraham longed to see my day. Before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be the very God who called Abraham and, and commissioned him and commanded him. This son of Abraham is, is actually Abraham's God. And they cried out, blasphemy. And they would kill him for that statement. They would nail him to the cross, thus fulfilling the prophet of old. They have laid the iniquity of us all upon him. You see, we still have sin. And God still responds to sin with judgment. But this time the judgment did not fall upon you and I, but fell upon the son of Abraham, the serpent slayers. He took all of our sin upon himself that he may give us grace. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and he gathered all of his apostles together, all of his followers. And he said to them, go, go, just like he said to Abraham, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to the nations. Now we are to bless all the birds, bring them into the kingdom. Every tongue and tribe and language of people, go, he said. Just like, just like he called Abraham. They, he said, you leave everything behind. It's time to go. Go do this work. I wonder if they thought, well, well where are we going? <laughs> where are we supposed to go? How are we going to get there? And Jesus says, don't worry about where you're going. Close your eyes, take my hand, and I will guide you. In fact, he, he ends the great gospel of Matthew saying, and behold what I am with you always, even to the, the very end of the age. Which is how you and I, because these people went and told, is how you and I have become children of Abraham. You know, the Bible says in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or Galatians 3, 29, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to his promise. We are the children of Abraham. The song is true. Father Abraham had many sons. Right? And I am one of them. And so are you. 
And all the promises of Scripture given to Abraham are now rightfully yours. The land is yours. Of course, not the, not some place of real estate upon this earth, but the new earth to which it points shall be ours. We shall inherit it. And He will make our names great. And He will make us into a great nation. The kingdom of God that reaches every tongue, tribe, and language, and people. He will make us great for His greatness and for His glory. In fact, one day, another book will be opened. Do you realize this? And you know what's in it? It's another genealogy. It's called The Lamb's Book of Life. And I tell you, it will not bore you. You won't think, I don't care about this. It will stir your heart as you hear names read of your families and your friends who have been redeemed by the son of Abraham, the seed by which all families are, are blessed. And one day, this lamb who was slain and is risen will read your name in the book of life for your great and eternal joy. He will exalt your name so that you might exalt his name forever. Let's start today. Let's exalt the name of Jesus. Let's leave this place rejoicing in his name, quick to tell of what he has done to solve our problem of sin. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for our Lord. I thank you for your great plan of redemption that just told us here, just hinted at way back thousands and thousands of years ago that you planned to bless all families of this earth. We stand as great beneficiaries of that promise. We have been blessed by you. Not because we are worthy of your blessings, but because you are gracious and good and full of mercy and you have claimed us for yourselves. But you have also commanded us, haven't you, Father, that we too would be a blessing for others. We would make your name great in their lives. Can you please help us? Please help us to stop thinking about what we could get from you and what, how we can serve you. Help us to exalt you in our hearts. Help us to find great joy in you. I pray for my friend here this morning who's not a Christian. I pray, Father, that they would no longer harden their hearts against you. I pray that they would be overwhelmed by this very thought that you are gracious and good and only long for their good if they will simply bow their knee to their maker and say, I belong to Jesus. Will you please give them that heart and that faith to do so? In the meantime, will you work amongst this church? May we be known, Hamilton Baptist Church is a people who want to make great the name of Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations throughout the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.